0: Street, the music and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmaccartneypod at gmail.com Hello, 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 and hey, hey, hey Jude. Welcome all you latchlifters to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. And remember, this is widescreen podcasting. This is wide screen podcasting. Of course, I am your host, Sam Wiles. I've got a feeling we're going to have a good time. And thank you all for tuning in and dropping out. I hope you're all well, safe and sound. Yes, everyone, I am indeed back. A third day running-ish to bring you the final instalment of our coverage of what has to be the greatest thing to happen to the Beatles' legacy and fandom since the novelty Apple USB collection. Yes, folks, this is going to be part three of our review series covering Peter Jackson's The Beatles Get Back on Disney+. I've honestly been having a blast doing all of these episodes for you all, and I can't wait to give you my final two cents on this amazing series. I imagine you've already listened to part one and two of this little review series we're doing, as who would be checking out the third and final review alone? You might be, who knows But yeah, this isn't going to be anything you wouldn't guess would happen. I'm going to go through episode three whilst trying to be as spoiler-free as possible and without repeating anything I said too much in the previous two instalments. As per, this is going to be relatively unscripted and an off-the-cuff hot take without all the usual trappings and structure of a regular Paul or Nothing episode. Let's just dive right into it, shall we? So, as always, wish me luck. Here we go. So yeah, first impressions. Of course, it was pretty fucking awesome. And it was a fantastic ending to this wonderful trilogy. Rather predictably, I didn't enjoy this one as much as part two, which was just a blast from start to finish. Though I would argue that this was the most powerful and significant of the three episodes. You know, it had all been building up to this over the last five, maybe six hours. And Jackson brings it all to a more than satisfying payoff. Just before we begin in earnest, though, I can't believe I never mentioned in either of the previous instalments that this is very much a continuation of the idea that the original Let It Be documentary was meant to achieve, you know, the fly on the wall documentary with very little interference from outside sources. Yes, we do get little title cards throughout the three episodes at the most pressing moments to explain the information that needs to be explained, but as I neglected to mention, there is no voiceover and there are no talking head sections. This means that there are no after-the-fact musings or compromises to alter your view of what you're seeing on screen. This means that the only truth you can take away from this series is that which is presented on screen. And I think, especially since, you know, two of the Beatles are now no longer with us and everyone has their own biases and everyone looked back on this period with a particularly... uh, Awkward lens, shall we say? This is certainly the best way to present this documentary, and Miss Jackson made the correct choice there. 100%. But yeah, back to the movie. Or episode. Rather like in the last instalment at the beginning, this largely picks up where the last one left off. Though, instead of picking up from George leaving the band and a depressing locale, we instead get to pick up from the exuberant Apple Studio sessions along with the addition of Billy Preston and the film wastes no time in getting right back to what we want, you know, what we all want from these sessions which is just awesome jamming between the five slash four of them. The standout figure in this early part of the documentary though has to be one little Heather McCartney who comes in with her mum and dad on day 17 and as soon as she arrives she basically takes over the whole show in that totally non-self-aware way that very confident children do. We all get to see her interact with all of the Beatles, and the genuine warmth that they all show her was completely gooey and heartwarming, and was a brilliant way to start off the the documentary with the right tone. Also, there was a part where she imitates Yoko screaming while sat on Paul's lap, which I know will be a highlight of highlights for many of you out there. Though, it has to be said, i got to admit that this was the first of two segments during this particular episode where I could not help but cry a little. I mean, you long-term listeners will indeed know enough about my personal life, and so to see beardy, fatherly Paul McCartney show so much unabashed, devoted love to his adopted daughter in front of his colleagues, no less, and in front of the camera... It it was as heartbreaking for me as it was heartwarming. Also, I must say that that this isn't the direct start of the documentary. We do open with George and Ringo working on Octopus's Garden. And so those two sequences together is a delightful overload of feel-good feelings. Now, a criticism I did have of this episode is that there really isn't much dramatic tension at this point. And I'm sure Peter Jackson was aware of this. I mean, coming from the position of someone who does know the ending, a.k.a. as will 95% of the people coming into this documentary, I wasn't as worried or fretful about the events about to unfold as I was in parts one and two, despite equally knowing the story. I mean, Jackson does go through great lengths to show that the Beatles you know, have to rehearse and mentally prepare themselves and... I do also appreciate that Jackson does attempt to do what he did in the last two installments, in the sense he puts you in the shoes of the Beatles and tries to make you feel their nervousness and their lack of certainty about what's going to happen here. However, unlike several other what-if moments in the last two episodes, there was no sense that it was going to go any other way. And I know that it isn't Jackson's fault, he can only work with what he has, but I do feel like there was a certain je ne sais quoi that was missing here to make things a little more tense and dramatic. I guess this also brings me to the topic of length for this third episode, and it did feel frightfully short when compared to the other two, and this is only compounded by the fact that a large chunk of it is indeed taken up by the Rooftop concert, something we knew was coming from the get-go again. On the whole, I really wish this episode had been longer, if not only for the Opening segment of the movie where I feel like we could have had, you know, more rehearsals and more jamming, that kind of thing, but also for the other songs that get totally glossed over at the end of the episode, and we'll come back to that point shortly. I mean, I know Jackson is criticized for his films being too long, especially with something like King Kong or Return of the King, basically anything with King in the title, but this stopped being a cinematic release a long time ago, and I think he underestimated how long we would be willing to spend. In this world. Anyway, moving on to the songs. And yes, we do get another truckload of individual songs here. Though, since we are getting the actual rooftop performance, there is a greater focus on rehearsing the same few songs that we know that they are going to be playing. But thankfully, this doesn't stop the the lads fooling around with a few rock and roll standards in their downtime, though. We get songs like Window, Window, which opens up the whole episode which was another great harrison standout moment you know we've had isn't it a pity and Dune, and so to have window window was a lovely little triplet there we then get the octopus one aka octopus's garden the one we hear from the 50th anniversary box set and it's clear now that that conversation was part of a wider chat with glenn johns we then get let it be uh, Yoko Jam number 3, as I've written down here. It may have another different title in the in the um, Beatles archives. But then we go on to another kind of Dig It Jam, the one where Heather imitates Yoko screaming, pulls on drums, this one here as well. And this also features Billy, so it's obviously going to be much better than the other Dig It Jam we had on the last episode. Blue Suede Shoes, Shake, Rattle and Roll... We get a load of work on the Long and Winding Road here, including the final take that does appear on the Let It Be album. Then we get Kansas City, Miss Anne, Old Brown Shoe makes an appearance, and we get to see George actually present it to the band on piano, which was very unique. There's some more Let It Be and Long and Winding Road again. We get Oh Darling, Don't Let Me Down. Paul does a solo version of Strawberry Fields Forever on piano. We get the uh, sweet Loretta fart bit on a take of Get Back. We even get a snippet of the water, water water-heavy version of Get Back. There's also a bit of Take These Chains From My Heart. I've Got A Feeling. We get early lyrics for something, including the whole cauliflower pomegranate dialogue that we got on the 50th box set. We get Love Me Do Again, which we had in the credits of part two, but we actually get to see them play it now. We also get I Want You She's So Heavy done here as well as a Lennon-McCartney composition called Half a Pound of Grease Paint, which was a real highlight for me, actually. I'd never heard it before. And it's something that would almost appear on the James Paul McCartney TV special. We also get the I Want You, She's So Heavy, I Had a Dream mashup, where Lennon and Billy Preston changed the lyrics to the song to be about Martin Luther King's I Had a Dream speech and about equal rights for all. That was awesome. I know a lot of people are going to be very enamoured with that. Then, obviously, we get to the rooftop with get back, take one, get back, take two, don't let me down, take one, I've got a feeling, one after 909, dig a pony, I've got a feeling, take two, don't let me down, take two, and get back, take three, you know, the one with you're going to be arrested, get back, all classic stuff. Then, over the credits, we get five feet high and rising, run for your life, two of us, Long and Winding Road and Let It Be. One thing I will say though, and this goes back to the length issue again, is that I was a little disappointed that we didn't get a greater variance of songs that featured on the album. You know, a big part of this documentary was the idea that we were going to be seeing the rooftop concert in full, along with all the repeat takes of certain songs, but unfortunately this seems to have come at the expense of having full takes of songs that you know never got a fair shake in the original documentary like for you blue or across the universe and then there are now three songs in in full that had quote-unquote little music video segments that now only seem to exist within the realm of michael lindsay hogg's film them being two of us let it be and the long and winding road but again we'll get to this in a moment now whilst this is the rooftop episode first and foremost, it was still nice to also see the Beatles continuing to work on some other songs that they would not take topside. As with the last two parts, the collaborative nature between them as a group shines through, as we continue to see their, as we continue to see them as these very logical, professional and pragmatic songwriters who methodically work out how best to work on these songs rather than just letting it all magically fall into place. We get to see The Long and Winding Road get finished off entirely, with much attention being put towards John's bass. And This documentary totally disproves that whole myth of, you know, Lennon intentionally ruining the bass of this song to get back and pull for some slight absolute bollocks. George presents Old Brown Shoe to the group on piano, and he does a load of work with Billy Preston, mean like, what's this called, Billy and talking about how he wouldn't have been able to compose this song on guitar just because the way that the notes are laid out on a piano and a guitar. Very interesting stuff. Paul helps John finalise the final lyrics to Don't Let Me Down, really at the 11th hour. And John helps George with the words for something, which was also uh, one of the highlights we got from the 50th anniversary box set, though in a more extended fashion. Okay, everyone, I'll just cut to the chase. This whole episode is about the rooftop gig, and there was a part of me that wished it could have been delayed to have more studio time, and another part of me kind of just wanted to get on with it. But it just highlights how all-encompassing and important this whole sequence is. It's the final battle where the Beatles take on the world and the authorities. (laughs) And, you know, the moment you, you see them setting up on the rooftop with the cameras and stuff. You know, the hairs on the back of your neck just just stand up. And the moment Paul comes up to the roof, along with the other Beatles, and like he jumps down on that piece of wood, you are, for a brief moment, instantly transported back to that original Michael Lindsay Hogg movie, which is fine, because that part of that film was always great, and we all loved it. Only, this time, we get so much more than we ever got before. And whilst I said that the film was lacking in suspense, you know, that only exists during the rehearsal stage because, you know, once the rooftop stuff kind of kind of gets going, you really are on the edge of your seat knowing that some of the greatest shit ever is about to kick off. And kick off it does. And the award for the most standout person in this whole documentary does swing back in the favour of Mr. Peter Jackson especially for this final sequence as his direction and editing of the rooftop was simply outstanding a star top marks full marks for me it wasn't the rooftop gig itself you know i will always love the way the beatles play this music but it was the way that it was presented that truly was the apotheosis of the entire docu series for me yeah i said that basically Jackson was presented with the challenge of presenting the rooftop gig in a way that had never been seen before and in all fairness it is the part of the Lindsey Hogg movie that he did best and by this point every shot and cut is burned into our minds collectively as a fan base simply changing up the shots would not have been enough and so Jackson takes it a step further with. Incredible results. Once we get to the rooftop, Jackson opens up with this split-screen effect of three squares in the centre of the screen with three different shots. And I was so fucking excited. It was like a kaleidoscopic version of the rooftop gig. And I was like, are you kidding me? We don't deserve this. And the effect was completely sold straight away. Not only does it offer the same greater scope and perspective that he's been giving us across this whole documentary series already and allows you to experience the, a wider section of the physical rooftop than could ever be expected. But it also, you know, it keeps you more active, it keeps your eyes moving and ensures that you are more engaged with the material than you ever imagined, whilst also ensuring that part three might be the most rewatched part of this docuseries because people are going to want to make sure that they get everything, every shot memorized and then he cuts back to a single regular frame and my heart kind of sank here i was genuinely concerned that he would bottled it at the last moment and we weren't going to get this style for the whole performance and we don't technically it's better basically jackson consistently swaps between a single frame a two frame split screen an equal three frame split screen with the three squares in the center a three-frame split screen with two smaller screens to one side, and even an equilateral four-frame split screen, which was very reminiscent of the original Let It Be album cover. Again, not only does this give us a greater coverage of the actual gig, but it also means that we rarely, if ever, have to leave it, as much of the ground-level interviews while they're playing is done through said split screen. But yeah... Of course, the main boon of this effect is to indulge your inner Beetle nerd. Like I said, most of us know this whole thing frame by frame, and now we've got a boatload of homework to get through. So yeah, the rooftop, it's here, and better than ever. Not only do we have the same incredible editing work from Jackson, but like the last two movies, we are also graced with the technological upgrades to the project. Yeah, again, I'm not going to be going into all that much detail here, but what I will say is that I cannot believe how brilliantly this show was presented. Like, yeah, we've had certain hd of the rooftop gig over the years, but never to the degree that was on display here. As trite as it sounds, the film basically makes you feel like you are one of the people on the roof. I mean... Maybe not one of those particular people, as I was shocked at how the majority of people smiling and waving were people not directly on the roof, and the crew looked far too ambivalent for my liking. But yeah, Jackson manages to make you feel like you are amongst those unimpressed, ungrateful losers with grace and class. Also, the sound is just stellar. It was crazy how vibrant and full-bodied it sounded. And, of course, a lot of the takes were good enough to be used on the album a fact that, you know, appears on screen several times, but, you know, it really does make you appreciate just what a job the sound design team did on the day, because, you know, this is 1969. It's not the most advanced tech. They haven't got, you know, stuff flown in from America or anything, and it was all done at the last minute, and yet it's, it just sounds indescribably good. You've seen it before. You've heard it before. You've probably watched the doc. You know for yourselves what I'm on about. Also, in terms of sound, something that I really appreciated was how Jackson used a variety of mic locations when showing the performance. We get to hear it from the roof itself, the roof across the road, down from ground level, and even inside the Apple building itself. Which leads me to my next point. As there were some new delights to be seen during this rooftop sequence, and it was something that was entirely absent from the original edit, which is the interaction between the police with the public, and more importantly, the Apple staff. Early during the set of the roof sequence, Jackson informs us that there was a secret hidden camera, well, not so hidden camera, installed in the Apple office's reception area, and you know he was going to have some fun with this footage. He wouldn't be able to resist it's like a kid in a candy store. And yet, as soon as the stuffy, totally boorish business owners with no sense of cultural import or historical significance start to make their complaints... Two policemen arrive at the Apple office's front door. And let me just say, these two guys literally look about 10 years old apiece. And they come in and we see that they try to shut down the performance right away as they've had like 30 complaints in half an hour. And yet the Apple staff, who all deserved a massive bonus for their work here, do nothing but dick them around, stall their asses and put them through the ringer. And since it's late 60s police, they kind of just hilariously, politely wait for you know, them all to claim to be trying to turn it down. The most important thing that this does, though, is that it gives us a worthy B-plot to cut away to and somewhat, you know, not just get bored, I guess, of the entire rooftop gig. And I know no one would actually get bored of the rooftop gig, but, you know, the interviews down on ground level... Would great a bit if that was the only thing we cut away to. And Jackson could have even just done a single take of each song and just focused on the roof. But with this police bit, it really just ensures that you aren't just watching four scousers on a rooftop for like 40 minutes. And it is interesting, you know, it's great to see how the staff are interacting with them and putting their necks on the line for the Beatles. And you know what? Speaking of notable standouts, this is also a good time, as any, to give a massive shout-out to the low-key, most underrated man in the whole documentary series, the Beatles' road manager, Mal Evans. Not only had he been dutifully fulfilling all of the Beatles' ridiculous requests without uttering a peep, including anvils, clothes, tea and mountains of toast, but he also basically fucks the police around even more than the rest of the staff, and does the bare minimum in the face of possible arrest, you know? He's a silent hero, and his end will always continue to bother me. So yeah, massive shout-out to Mal Evans here, you know. If you've ever wondered about Mal, you're going to get loads of him in this docuseries. But yeah, the rooftop gig continues. And when Lennon was singing the first version of Don't Let Me Down, it was the second time that I did shed a tear or two. I mean, not only is it a beautiful song, but he's so raw here. And you can't help but, you know, thinking that he's been dead for so long. And here he is alive in HD visuals and crisp Dolby sound. And it was all just so over overwhelming for me, really. Luckily, The One After 909 is such a pick-me-up that I wasn't sad for too long. Though, I will say, when the rooftop gig is over, and the text tells you that it was indeed their last performance, it hits you so goddamn hard. It was earth-shatteringly painful feeling, to tell the truth. And it's almost like the band has died in front of you. Not literally died, but the way in that when you have like a really bad breakup with someone, it feels like the other person has died. Again, like the Titanic, we all knew it was coming, but it still doesn't take any of the emotional angst away. And the rooftop gig was indeed over. And then we come to the stuff that took place after the concert. And rather sadly, they skip over the next day's recordings by featuring them in the credits. Like, oh, that was just such a weird move. I really didn't like that at all. Uh, I wish they would have given those quasi-music video songs, their fair due. I would have sat around for another 20 minutes. But not only that, I feel like this is a part of the film that suffers from being specifically only about the Get It Be slash Let It Be sessions rather than being about the album Let It Be. Because I felt like we were kind of missing a few boring old facts and statistics here to cap it all off, like... It would have been nice to have known about the release of the album, the dates, how well it sold, to know a bit about the Michael Lindsay Hogg movie that came out after it. Heck, we don't even get any information about how it wasn't released for over a year whilst they were making Abbey Road, and there's no fucking mention of one Mr Phil Spector. For some reason, the film seems to run out of steam and lose interest the moment the rooftop gig is done. And yet, I know that this isn't the story that Jackson's trying to tell... And he wouldn't have had the footage to really show a lot of this, and he might have to do something far too different. But I would have appreciated that he would have slowed the ending down a bit and maybe filled in a few knowledge gaps. Yeah, because they they would have had to have done talking heads or voiceover to fill in this information. Though, possibly, like I say, they'd have done even just a a 20-minute, even 15-minute part four. You know, Obviously, it would be very little to do, with the style or feel of the the first three, but, you know, like a little epilogue or something like that. It would have been appreciated. Maybe we'll have to wait for the Blu-ray to come out, who knows. Again, this comes back to the issue of length with this episode. It was just because whilst we do get a nice ten-minute sequence of the band celebrating the work they've done, listening back to the tapes in the studio, and it does end it all on a touching high note... And obviously, the rooftop is the natural closer. It's not the end of the story, and we all know that. And it didn't need to be this rushed. It wasn't a theatrical release, like I say. But yeah, that really is the end of the negatives, because to criticise Jackson too much here would be really disingenuous, as he's done us a complete solid here. You know, regardless of me not being totally satisfied with part three is irrelevant, because... Peter Jackson's The Beatles Get Back is still the best thing that's ever been released since I became a Beatles fan. 100%, that is the case. It is that good. I really need to go back and watch Living in the Material World to double-check which one I like more here, but, you know, I reckon there's definitely an argument to say that this is even more culturally significant and an in-depth deep dive than the anthology series was. You know, this is the truth. This is the definitive article when it comes to the Get Back Let It Be sessions. And from this point onwards, I bet we're not going to hear nearly as much clamouring and moaning for the release of the Lindsay Hogg cut, now that this film exists. Especially with the prospect of an extended Blu-ray cut in the future. like I really just think that the Lindsay Hogg version is just going to be a DVD bonus feature. You know, it's never going to get an individual release now that this exists. And At the end of all this, now that we've seen all of these clearly classic, enjoyable, fun moments, you are left wondering what the real truth behind the Michael Lindsay Hogg cut was. And you even, like, struggle to empathise with how he was even able to make such a negative film as he did. Like, you know, it's only 80 minutes long, and 30 minutes is full of numbers and the videos. But still, that's 50 minutes of... Potential excellent band banter, hilarious takes and heartwarming rehearsals and interpersonal moments that he could have included and for some reason didn't? Strange, right? Fortunately for us as a fan base and for listeners of this podcast, one of my favourite takeaways from these films is that we don't have to walk away saying something stupid like, Oh my God, I feel like I know even less about these sessions than when I came into them. Because that's not what happened. It might not have voiceover or talking heads, but Peter Jackson, through his selection of shots and sequences and you know certain little Easter eggs and ideas that he plants for us that all have payoffs in the end, like all of the best teachers, he's been able to deliver something fun and engaging and memorable that is also highly educational and highly detailed and has managed to... Impart so much knowledge on us, like, even just through one watch of this, you know, I've learned more about these sessions than I have in my entire fandom of The Beatles. There is so much now that I feel I have a 3D perspective on, I've had my opinions changed, I've had some reinforced, I've had some expanded, but I've definitely walked away from all three of these episodes with just a better perspective. I feel like I know these sessions now. I feel like I know what the story was, again, without being manipulated or pandered to. What's even better is that he did what I enjoyed or I thought I enjoyed about the original Let It Be film, which was that he portrayed the Beatles honestly as real human beings with real human flaws as well as graces. I was immensely appreciative of that. More so, the whole thing was entertaining and an amusing experience, as well as being a true masterclass in filmmaking and edited. So yeah, pretty damn good. Overall, I am torn with my ranking of this episode and my scoring, as, you know, the ending was a real weak point after the rehearsals, and the studio stuff was the weakest of the three films, but the rooftop gig itself is easily the best part of the entire series. And so I'm probably going to have to meet it somewhere in the middle here and just give it a flat four-star score. Bang-on 80%, nothing more, nothing less. It might be the weakest of the threesome, but that's only because the entire series as a whole was just so goddamn strong. Just to reiterate, folks, this is not by any means a negative review, and it's just that this was the episode where I found the most genuine criticisms. Of course, I still... I, I loved it. You know, this is... Again, the best thing that's come out since I've been a Beatles fan, and I I struggle to think what's left that could potentially top it. You know, when Lennon sang of everybody having a wet dream, I was one of them, and I know all of you felt the same. It's honestly a shame that we're now at the end of this journey, and there's a certain existential what-now crisis that I'm feeling now that we're out of episodes to review. And I do wonder whether we'll be fortunate enough to witness something so magnificent and groundbreaking once again how many stones are left unturned that is the question but I'm going to try to focus on the sweet and not the bitter because at the end of the day this has been an unforgettable experience that I'm thoroughly satisfied with and will recommend both to Beatle fans old and new as well as just plain old normies whilst there are improvements that I think we could all drudge up if we were held at gunpoint I could honestly say that I am nonetheless grateful and and thankful that this exists. I couldn't have asked for anything better. Thank you, Mr Jackson, for your tireless work on this project. You've spent years on this, and it really shows. It's been a blast. Thank you on behalf of the group and ourselves, and I hope we pass the audition. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Paul or Nothing. This has been part three and the end of our reviews of Peter Jackson's The Beatles Get Back on Disney+. I hope you've enjoyed these episodes. I've certainly enjoyed making them. Let me know your thoughts. This is something I really want to start a dialogue on. Let me know what you thought of parts one, two, and three. What were your favourite moments? What made you cry? What made you uh, annoyed? What did you wish was included? What did you see that you never even knew existed? Drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com or hit me up on the Twitter at McCartneyPod and let me know. Next episode is actually going to be a little bit different than what was scheduled, as I have literally a bonus episode for you. Very exciting stuff. I'm not going to reveal it right away, but it is something about Get Back, to say the least. And then after that, it will be, indeed, the Get Back coffee table complimentary side book thing. You know what I'm about. It's the book called The Beatles Get Back. But yeah, thank you for listening to another episode of Paul or Nothing. I'm sorry that this one was a little bit late again, but I think I set myself too much of a task, really, to do three in three days. But, you know, this has still been the most Paul and Nothing content in a week that I think I've ever done. Thank you for listening to it, folks. I'm sure Dillain Lane's already been playing us out by now. So, as always, I'll just say, keep listening to Paul, keep listening to The Beatles, keep watching Get Back, keep watching Peter Jackson's films, because they really are some of the best in the industry Thank you for listening again. Peace and love, peace and love. Hare, Hare Krishna. No more autographs. Play us out.
1: You can celebrate anything you want Yes, you can celebrate anything you want Oh, no. Blue road, hard. well You can penetrate any place you go Yes, you can penetrate any place you go you right. improve with time You're not to Ricky and like a fine wine that. really I'll put us down as Beaujolais 62